This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Green Gulch Sunday Talk. Um, I've been having some, a little trouble with my microphone, so if there's any problem, please let um, Kogetsu know, Jenny know, so that we can uh, take care of that. Uh, I wanted to say that I, I was scrolling through the gallery before while I was listening to the bell, and it was very nice to be able to see so many people. And I realized there's uh, someone mentioned to me how parched they feel parched with not having contact with uh, family and friends for so long. And that word really resonated with me. Uh, but we have this technology and this is the way we come together. Uh, yesterday, I was at the Noah Bode talk that Tension Roshi gave and he bowed to each person and said their name, which is a, a practice. And it took a long time. <laughs> there were a lot of people there, however, I know when my name was said and I bowed to Tenshin Roshi, I felt so welcomed and that just part of things and that I belonged uh, at this event. So I want you all to feel that way, welcomed, that you belong, that uh, we're here together. Uh, the other day, actually last week, I gave two different lectures and the the technology was a little different than this i think it was zoom and facebook that they showed it on facebook and there was no gallery to, there was no people it was just me <laughs> and my picture and i couldn't tell if anybody was there actually and it was very odd very strange um i heard people did show but i didn't get to see anyone so I'm very glad to see you. Today is a major holiday in the Christian religion, Easter. It's also the end of Passover, which is a major holiday of the Jewish religion. And it's also this coming week, April 8th is the traditional day for Buddha's birthday to be celebrated. So springtime, you know, for millennia, for probably um, as long as uh, human beings have gathered, uh, some celebration noting some marking of this time of year, this in the Northern Hemisphere, this springtime, this renewal, birth, coming forth of, of new life, and of course, 
um, it's always birth and death. It's always the great matter of birth and death. We don't have one without the other. It's also the myth of Demeter and Persephone is the springtime where Persephone comes out from the underworld where she's been for six months and is reunited with her mother, Demeter, with great rejoicing, great happiness, and this feeling of the moistening of this parched life without connection, without contact, being separated is part of that uh, old myth and the ceremonies that are probably lost now that came with that myth. So I wanted to say a little bit about Buddha's birth, the story of Buddha's birth. And some of you may know this story. However, my sense is that the telling and retelling of these stories in the liturgical calendar of the year is uh, this cyclical looking, looking again at these stories I find important and necessary really. And we see, you know, our first take of the, this story of the Buddha's birth or Buddha's enlightenment or whatever the story might be. And then the next year, the next year when we're different and we've changed, the story changes and our, our feeling about the story, the meaning of the story, the significance of it in our life. So many of you may know the story of Buddha's birth, but I will tell not a long, long story, um, but uh, the main points of the story. Now, just a while ago, I brought up, you know, this renewal and springtime and rejoicing and birth and regeneration. And I just want to say, just as I had said, birth and death always come up together. Uh, just to note this spring, we have uh, many sad events, um, mass shootings, several, many mass shootings, what's going on in Burma, the George Floyd murder trial and the re-traumatizing as we go through what we need to go through to find justice. And yet the pain and the grieving and the reopening of these wounds for, for many people, many, many people around the world. And this is necessary. This is, this is our life. So I don't want to forget that in the midst of these stories of delight and celebration. Also, the violence against Asian uh, people of Asian descent, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, which has grown exponentially in the United States and probably around the world. Uh, to note that, that 
the horror of, of that uh, unfolding that we're seeing and the ignorance that surrounds all of these actions that I've mentioned and these occurrences. So I don't forget that. And we can't forget that. And we're not being asked to forget that, but we hold it all. Can we hold our life with everything that it brings? So in the story of the Buddha's birth, um, it starts with the conception actually uh, Buddha's parents were Queen Maya and Shudodana, I probably do not pronounce that correctly, his father, the king of the Shakya clan. And they uh, were together and had not had any children. And after many years, of 20 years, I think, Queen Maya one night had a very profound, numinous dream. And the dream was that she uh, was greeted by a six-tusked elephant carrying a lotus flower in his trunk. A white elephant with six tusks came to her, gave her the lotus flower, and then entered her right side that was the dream. And when she woke up, she felt it was an auspicious omen. And lo and behold, about a month later, she was, she knew she was with child. And she carried this child for 10 lunar months. And as was the custom, uh, she wanted to return to her own home to give birth and she was walking uh, with her retinue and uh, be, while you know she was uh, soon to give birth and she stopped at the Lumbini Grove, a beautiful park. This is near Kapilavastu, Kapilavastu uh, in Nepal, Southern Nepal. And she stopped at this beautiful Lumbini Grove and the sal tree bent down to give her support as she was walking. And she uh, gave birth while standing there holding on to the sal tree. She gave birth to uh, Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gotama. Now, there were many auspicious things that happened next. For one, the baby Buddha was able to walk immediately. And he took seven steps, seven steps, and then he pointed up with his right hand and he pointed down with his left hand to the heaven and the earth. And he spoke, the little baby uh, Siddhartha Gautama said, above the heavens and below the heavens and earth, I alone am the world honored one. 
So picture this little baby saying that after walking, taking these seven steps. And there were many auspicious omens. The world shook in many ways. Flowers rained down on uh, the mother and child and the whole retinue. And then water, both warm and cool water, flowed from the sky to purify and wash the baby, the baby Buddha. So this, these were, these were the elements of this wonderful, wonderful birth. This uh, really auspicious birth. And in, in our ceremony, in the ceremony for Buddha's birthday, the, uh, one of the main things we do is have a pagoda covered with flowers, a small little pagoda covered with flowers and a little figure of the baby Buddha standing there with his hands. And then we bathe the baby Buddha with sweet tea. This is reenacting all these things that happened at the time of the Buddha's birth. And in, in the Japanese um, ceremony, Hanamatsuri, Hanamatsuri means festival of flowers. Flowers is, is one of the main uh, parts, the main offering, lots and lots of flowers. So you might um, wonder, just like any story, any myth, there's layers of meaning, layers of meaning for a child and for uh, an adult. What, what does this story mean? What does this mean to us? What does the Buddha's birth of coming into this world of the Buddha, how, how is this a meaningful thing for us to mark and remember? And, and what do you think about what the baby Buddha said? I alone am the world honored one. That, um, what does that mean? I alone am the world honored one. So aside from just a spring celebration of new birth, uh, the elements of this story uh, resonate in different ways for me. The, um, both in the Buddha's birth story and in the Buddha's enlightenment story, which is another kind of birth, you could say, the Buddha uh, says, uh, the Buddha awakens or is born with all beings and the great earth. And when the Buddha says, I alone am the world honored one, this I alone, the world honored one is our own Buddha nature, our own awakened mind, which is one, where there's nothing inside or outside of it. There's nothing subjective or objective about it. It's just one. So this I alone am the world honored one is also talking about our true nature is one, one 
one suchness that cannot be divided. And at the exact same time, at the exact same time of this limitless oneness, there is the limits of our life and the myriad appearances of this oneness. Out of this oneness comes myriad appearances, 10,000 things. Each of us, everything we see, smell, taste, think, are appearances arising from this one mind, this one oneness. So all beings, when Buddha is born, it's also saying all beings are born together. Just like when Buddha awakened, all beings awakened along with Buddha. Because Buddha and all beings are non-dual. And as the Lotus Sutra says, only a Buddha and a Buddha can fathom the reality of our existence. So we are all together with Buddha, our Buddha nature. These seven steps that the baby Buddha took really means the entire universe. Some commentaries say he went in four directions with these steps. Uh, and so the entire universe comes together for this to occur. And not only for the baby Buddha to appear, but for each of us and each moment. That is the entire universe coming together, being born in this moment. So the way we are together, our true form is this completely interdependent and independent. This oneness is independent. You can't compare it to anything. And at the exact same time, interdependent with all things, appearing and disappearing. And, and this bathing, you know, the, in, the, in the story, the um, heavenly beings poured down these warm and cool water. And, and in the ceremony, we take ladles of sweet tea poured over the Buddha's head. Uh, and this, this kind of anointing or purifying is, is because things are already pure, just the, way, just the way they are. With all beings, I wash body and mind free from dust, pure and shining within and without. This bathing is we, we bathe the baby Buddha because already the Buddha is pure. We're not making the Buddha pure. It's more celebrating this way that the Buddha is and our own Buddha nature is. So this is a kind of rejoicing. And does the way we rejoice when babies are born, when babies come into the world, uh, there's often enormous, great joy and delight, great, and, and over and over and over again, 
we find delight in this rebirth, new birth. Now the Buddha came into the world because of vow. This is, this is part of what we understand how it is that Buddhas come into the world. They don't come by kind of karmic conscious uh, retribution or uh, fruit of karmic actions. Buddhas come into the world out of vow. And the vow is to awaken all beings, to open Buddha's truth to all beings, to uh, demonstrate, display, and show sentient beings the Buddha Dharma, to realize with others and to help others to realize their true nature and to enter Buddha's way. That is, that is, that is from the Lotus Sutra, what I just mentioned, and this vow to awaken with all beings and to help all beings. That is the only purpose of the Buddha to come into the world. So the rejoicing and the celebration, that's for us too, not just for baby Buddha to appear, but this vow that allowed Buddha to come into the world is to open, demonstrate, and display, have us realize and enter the Buddha way to relieve suffering and the causes of suffering. So I, I wanted to bring up a Zen story that has been turning for me. There's one particular uh, part of the story that when I hear it, I often, I have a visceral response to it. And I just thought I would, it came up in a class the other day and I just thought there's something there for me right now uh, to look at. And so I, I took some time with this case. Now, this case is called uh, Feng Shui's Single Adam, which maybe doesn't sound very interesting. Uh, and it uh, is in the Book of Serenity, as well as the Blue Cliff Record. And Dogen Zenji also collected uh, koans. He has a collection of three over 300, 301, I think, koans that uh, he didn't comment on, but he collected. Um, put them together. And it's uh, part of this koan is in that collection as well. And Suzuki Roshi lectures on this. Um, so the story is Feng Shui, who, who by the way, was uh, a teacher, uh, he was a teacher in the Rinzai or Linji, uh, lineage, and his teacher was Nan Yuran, a great teacher in the Linji lineage. And 
there's slightly different versions, so I'm going to kind of put them together. But uh, Feng Shui was giving a Dharma talk, sitting up on the dais, up on the altar. And he said, if you set up a single atom, and it's also translated as a single speck of dust, the nation flourishes. If you do not set up a single atom of dust, the nation perishes. The nation perishes. This is what he said in, in the lecture. And then later on, Shuedo, who makes, uh, who comments on koans and has verses of koans in, and is in the Blue Cliff record, um, said he held up his staff. This is a teaching staff, walking staff, but teaching staff, and said, are there any patched robe monks who will live together and die together? That was Shwedo. So I'm going to say the koan again. Uh, Feng Shui got up to give a Dharma talk, was on the, at the altar, on, the, on his seat, and said, if you set up one speck of dust, one atom of dust, if you raise it up, the nation will flourish. If you do not raise up a speck of dust, the nation will perish. And Shuedo or Secho in Japanese raised his staff and said, are there any patrol monks who will live together and die together. So the, the part of the case that that last line from Shuedo, this question, are there any, carrying his staff, I think not to forget, he held up his staff. Are there any Patro monks who will live together and die together? So there's various commentary verses on this koan. And um, there's some in the commentary and also in another rendition of this uh, koan, when feng shui says, if you raise up a speck of dust, the nation flourishes. And then he there's an interspersed kind of comment. It says, the peasants, or the old peasants will furrow their brows. If you don't raise up uh, a speck of dust, the nation will perish and the peasants will rest in peace and shout hallelujah. So what is that all about? So I'm, uh, and how come this, this is speaking to me you know, the, um, in the commentary and Suzuki Roshi as well in his lecture talks about this raising up of a speck, 
doing something, picking up something and trying to do something. How can we pick up a speck, of, even a speck of dust in oneness? What, how can you pull anything from whence, from where would you pull a speck if you're totally one? If, if the nature of reality is just one, where are there specks even? Who can pull us a speck away? Who would be pulling it? So this is a kind of, you know, we can turn and, and look at um, this, the teachings of the absolute and suchness and non-duality. And there's, it doesn't make sense that you can pick up a piece of dust even from where and who would pick it up in oneness. However, this is, this is the limitless world of the absolute, you know, maybe the first principle. However, Buddha nature is not just sort of merging with that. Buddha nature is the limitless and the limited. And the limited are the 10,000 things. Each thing which is an appearance of this oneness in that form. And if you look carefully at the limited, completely carefully, you will see that it is, it is empty of separate self. It is completely interconnected. Still, in our limited way, in our conventional life together, in our world of birth and death, we do things not to forget that we can't what that our doing what is our doing what is what is the true doing that we're doing so this picking up a speck of dust um, in the commentary before it it talks about raising the banner of the teaching this was uh when a teacher sometimes would come to a town or was going to be giving a talk, they would hoist up a kind of flag or banner saying, you know, the Dharma is going to be spoken here. So when you, when you raise up a banner and say the Dharma is going to be spoken here, um, one must be uh, very, uh, very clear about what's happening because when you do anything, even for good purpose, for good reason, establishing a teaching, establishing, and Suzuki Roshi in this talk was from 1971, July. It's the last year of his life, actually. He just had about five months or so before he died. Uh, was at Tassahara talking about the establishment of Tassahar practice and, and this monastery, making this monastery uh, for Zen training. This is picking up an atom of dust. When you pick up this atom of dust, the nation flourishes, but the peasants have these furrowed brows. And Suzuki Roshi did pick up lots of pieces of dust, you know, uh, 
one of the old peasants. I remember when we got 300 Page Street, I came to visit in 1970. We had gotten it in 69. And there was an older, probably wasn't all that old. He was older than me, who had been a student for many years of Suzuki Roshi's and at Bush Street at Sokoji. And he moved to 300 Page Street, as did almost all the students who lived in the flats in Japantown on Bush Street and Pine Street. And this um, particular student who's no longer alive um, took the name Ananda. And he, he didn't like that we got 300 Page Street. It was, it was too big. There was too many people. You didn't get to be close enough with Suzuki Sensei. He called him Suzuki Sensei. And, you know, too many rules, too many regulations. Uh, he liked it back in the day when it was just us folks practicing together with Suzuki Roshi. He would have liked not to pick up that piece of dust. Then he would have been in peace. And, you know, hallelujah, it's just going along the way it's always going along. But that is uh, not what happened, you know. And not to forget that when we pick up a piece of dust, when we try and do something, even for the best reasons, even with great intentions, even with as much wisdom as far as our practice eye can see, still the peasants may frown and still there may be unintended consequences. There may be, even with the most sincereness, sincerity of our practice, uh, things happen that our people are not happy about. So, Right now, there's a lot of um, work being done during, you know, all three temples of San Francisco Zen Center have been uh, closed during COVID for quarantine and with very strict protocols. And now with the vaccinations and these change, there's changes and Tassajara is closed again for a second summer and we're discussing, there's a lot of discussion going on. What, what kind of Zen center are we just going to go back exactly to how things were? Was that the most uh, beneficial for beings? For our, uh, our great intention to practice Zazen and study the Buddha Dharma? and carry on Suzuki Roshi's way uh, for all beings is, is the form of, is the speck of dust that's been raised. Maybe we need to raise up some other speck of dust or set down one speck and raise up another. And there will be much furrowed brows, I think. You know, I won't even tell you some of the things I've heard about some of the changes. Um, you know, that would be premature. However, if we don't pick up a speck of dust, the nation 
parishes. You know, if we didn't take up our online Zoom events, you know, all these relationships and caring for the Sangha members and being together during this unusual time of separation, you know, it, it would wane, it would have waned. And who knows, you know, the damage done by not coming forth. But I think some people are not happy with all of this online stuff. They, they want face-to-face. -face. They want real contact. That makes sense. So there's furrowed brows and frowning. This is a piece of dust that we have raised up. And, and so many people have not just San Francisco Zen Center, all the groups all over the world are doing their best to continue to offer the Dharma uh, as, best, as best we can. And of course, so many other uh, groups and churches and temples and synagogues and um, nonprofits of all shapes and sizes doing their best and making that change. Or, or if they didn't pick that speck of dust up, the nation would perish. Yeah. So this picking up dust, uh, there's always positive and negative. There's always good and bad, beneficial and not beneficial. There's no way, you know, we wish, often we wish, can't I go somewhere, you know, where there's no, what the koan says, where there's no hot and cold, you know, where it's just peace, you know. And, and that peace is, it's not that it is not found, a peace, a tranquility, a deep serenity in our life, but it is in the midst of birth and death and good and bad and Buddhas and sentient beings and mistakes. And this is the muddy water. This is lotus and muddy water. There is no place we can go in our limited life, in our life of a sentient being that is somehow outside of that. And in this, in this koan, it says that Shweda, when he raised up his staff and said, are there any patchrope monks who will live together and die together? He, and in the commentary, it says he was dripping mud and water when he said that. So he got, Shwedo got kind of right in the middle of raising up something and flourishing and not raising up something and perishing and who's happy about it, who's not happy, who is it good for, who is it bad for. And he just cuts through with his staff, you know, raising this staff, whoa, 
are there any patro monks, meaning practitioners, really? You know, the Raksu is made of patches. The Okesa is made of patches uh, in the old traditional way of sewing Buddha's robe. That's the form, but it it is a field far beyond form and emptiness. It is a formless field. And in that formless field of between good and bad, leaping clear, he asks, are there any patro monks who will live together and die together? And that's the, for me, the turning phrase for this koan, this um, whole story, really. Are we going to live together and die together? We are in the same boat with all beings. We can't get out of the boat and swim to some lovely island where we're going to um, be safe, you know? Our safety is right in the middle, practicing with all beings. And the joy, the, the endless joy of practicing together, the bliss body, really, this is the bliss body of the Buddha, the Sambhogakaya is the practice body that's endlessly practicing in both joy and sorrow. There is, as you probably well know, to practice with someone who's in sorrow or to be practicing with our own sorrow, there is a deep, almost unnameable joy that comes there as well. So in the Buddha's enlightenment story, you know, he, he realized his true nature saying, marvelous, marvelous, all beings without exception are completely and thoroughly awakened, except they don't realize it. All, all beings and the great earth, nothing left out. How could it be left out of what it is? It just, it is. And, and he, um, for a while there, thought, I don't need to teach because all beings without exception are already awakened. Except they don't realize it, but they are. And then there was a request, you know, it says in the story from Brahma, you know, there are beings who, who would benefit, who have, you know, who are very close to really understanding your teaching, please teach. And the Buddha came down from the mountain, is the image. And he picked up a speck of dust and the nation flourished. He His coming down from the mountain to teach and to walk the earth, Rose Apple Island and teach uh, was throwing his lot in with all sentient beings who are not separate from Buddha, only a Buddha and a Buddha together realize the true form of existence. So down from the mountain he came, picked up a speck of dust, and we've been 
listening and practicing and uh, taking to heart and vowing to practice in the same way since then. And our vow to keep practice that, practicing that way forever is the Buddha body right now, right here, right now. That is the never-ending, everlasting, endless Buddha body. We are, we are creating that together endlessly with our own practice. So, you know, the, but that is not to say that there are not the nation parishes as well. There are, you know, reading about a Buddhist country that is um, gunning down their children and citizenry and is heartrending. It, it's, and yet, we know of Buddhist countries who have gone to war, who have used the Buddha Dharma in various ways that are not how it was intended, not for the benefit of beings. So when we, when you pick up a speck of dust, the nation flourishes, and yet it doesn't mean that there's just one thing happens. And yet each thing that happens is Buddha Dharma. You know, just like in the Genjo Koan, you know, as all things are Buddha Dharma, there is birth and death, Buddhas and sentient beings, practice, realization, birth and death. There's all these things. They're all Buddha Dharma. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there's the 10,000 things, good and bad. And as each of these myriad things, this is Genjo Koan, is without an abiding self, there's no Buddhas, no sentient beings, no birth, no death, no realization, no uh, delusion. Who are there any? Or who are the patch-robed monks who will live and die together? Are there any? May there be, may there be many, may there be endless numbers who are willing, knowingly and willing, this is the Bodhisattva, knowingly and willingly pick up a, a speck of dust, knowing that it is not separate from our Buddha nature, but also know, knowing that it is not, uh, that we cannot be outside of the truth of suffering. Still, we have to, we have to practice for the benefit of beings. So
so uh, Suzuki Roshi in this lecture at the end says, it, it's good, of course, to establish Zen Center. This was when it was, before it was San Francisco Zen Center, it was just Zen Center. Now there's so many Zen centers of all places all over in the United States. And of course, all over the world, there has been for millennia. Suzuki Roshi says, it's good, of course, to establish Zen Center, but if you are involved in small selfish idea, then you cannot see Buddha's face. You cannot see Buddha's face again. It is not visible. We, we study Buddhism to have enough courage to do something with it, with people. Big mind, you know, this big mind is limitless, but we are limited and we establish our practice in, in the middle of our delusion. This is this fusion of, of big mind and small mind is Buddha nature. You can't have one without the other. And big mind, as Suzuki Roshi says, accepts, can accept anything, can accept things as it is. So thank you very much for your uh, coming today and your attention. And I, I felt the benefit of talking with you, just your your attention was beneficial for me as I turned this story uh, with you. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.